Ephesians 1, our text for this morning will be verses 7 through 10. And this is God's word for us today. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray together. Father, give us from your holy word a proper view of the gospel. And work on our hearts as only you can to save souls, to bring repentance, and to grant deep, deep abiding hope and joy. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, which we read earlier this morning, is one long sentence in the original Greek, and it's a doxology. The Greek word doxa is to praise. A doxology is a, a praising of God. It's a proclamation of praise to God that opens this letter. And verse 3, which introduced this big sentence for us, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the opening sets forth for us the theme of the passage. Paul is praising God for grace. And as we saw in verses 3 through 6, your right response and my right response is to find joy in and praise God for His grace. In 3 through 6, we saw Paul offer praise to God the Father for salvation, election, sanctification, adoption, sheer grace. And we found many reasons to find joy in our salvation. And we are by no means finished. In our text for this morning, we're going to find four more reasons to praise God for grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you're not tired of God giving you reasons for joy. Now, if you didn't hear the message on verses 3 through 6 last week, or if this idea of the grace of God is unfamiliar to you, I do want you to hang with us this morning, because this little four-verse section that we're studying today, it has beautiful things that are unique, uh, that we need to know, that we need to understand. And, and, and I'll do everything I can to make it simple and clear. But if you follow with us today, I think you're going to hear some things that will offer you great hope, great, great, great possibility for life and joy in Jesus. So let's get started with our first point. Every one of these is going to be another praise God for. Last week's sermon was praise God for grace. That was part one. This week's sermon is praise God for grace, part two. And so every one of these is praise God for something. Point number one, praise God for redemption and forgiveness. Praise God for redemption and forgiveness. 
Look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So after finishing with the discussion of the ways that God the Father has blessed all believers, the focus here now shifts to how all Christians are blessed by God through the work of Jesus Christ, God the Son. I told you last week, all that the one true God is, there is only one God, but all that the one true God is, all the persons, the three persons of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all of these persons as the one God have actively played a role, eternally played a role in bringing about the salvation of God's elect. God the Father and God the Son have never done any work that were at cross purposes from one another. God the Son and God the Spirit have no different goals and no different agenda in the plan of God. There is one perfect will of God in all things that brings about our salvation. Know that because that's important for your theology later on. Now how do we know though that verse 7 has shifted us from talking about the Father to talking about God the Son? It speaks of the benefits that Christians have through His blood. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirit. Only God the Son took on human form and had blood to shed to bring about our salvation. That's how we know we're talking about God the Son. Now, but when Paul says we have this redemption in the blood of Jesus, he's not just talking about the physical element of Jesus' blood, but there in that is sort of bound up the life of Jesus, the entire concept of the perfect human life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus for our rescue. It's all tied together here. But there's no question, friends, that we're talking about Jesus now. So what did Jesus do for you and me if you're in Christ? What benefits do we have? What is a reason to praise God for grace? Here we see that in Jesus Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's look at the two big words there, redemption and forgiveness. And there are, there are things here, guys, that if you'll get it, you will rejoice in Christ. The word redeem or redemption has to do with a purchase. So if you want to define the word redeem, say that to redeem a person is to buy us out of something. To buy someone or something back from something. That's what redemption is about. And that concept is present all over the Bible. When I say to buy a person out of something or to buy something back, does that, does that bring to mind any pictures from the Old Testament to you? How about the book of Ruth? You guys know the book of Ruth? Right? Naomi lost the right to her property when her husband sold the property and moved to Moab. And when Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned to Jerusalem, Naomi's property was owned at that time by another person. But Boaz, the near relative of Naomi, was able to buy that land again and to restore it to Naomi and Ruth. Boaz redeemed the land by paying the price required to purchase it for Naomi and Ruth. That's what redeem means. Or how about the book of Hosea? Hosea's wife was Gomer, 
Uh, she was maybe not the ideal spouse, if you know the story. And she had been made a slave and was being sold on the auction block. And Hosea redeemed Gomer by paying her purchase price to rescue her from the slavery that she was facing and then to bring her back home. At the time of the Exodus, God made clear to Israel that the life of every firstborn, animal as well as human, belonged to him. And God allowed that each of those lives could be redeemed by a sacrificial substitute. Listen to Exodus 13. I'm going to read to you 1 and 2 and then 11 through 13, or 11 to 15. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then verse 11 says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Do you see the concept? A life should be taken. One of those lives belongs to God. But a payment is made, this time in the form of a sacrifice, and the life that could have been taken is spared. It is bought it is ransomed by a payment. That is what it means to be redeemed. You know, even in the New Testament, the book of Philemon shows us the issue of redemption. Onesimus was a first century slave who belonged to a man named Philemon. And Onesimus ran away and he met Paul in the city of Rome. And there, Paul preached the gospel to this runaway slave and Onesimus became a believer. And Onesimus is one of the people traveling to Ephesus, carrying the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, the very letter you and I are studying today. Onesimus was helping transport it from Rome to Ephesus. But see, that was not the end goal of Onesimus. He was on his way to the city of Colossae because he was going to return to his former master. And Paul wrote a letter to Philemon. And he asks Philemon, please pardon Onesimus for the crime of running away. And in a beautiful little part of the book of Philemon, Paul offers to pay back Philemon for any cost Onesimus' departure cost him. Paul was offering a form of redemption to pay the price so Onesimus could be set free. Now, I could show you more pictures of redemption, but I think that point's pretty clear, right? Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus paid a price in order to set the children of God free. How? 
Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Romans 6.23, we hear that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's word is clear. If you don't know it, Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. All of us are sinners. We're all guilty of sin before God. We are we're tainted by the sin that Adam committed in the Garden of Eden. And we choose to sin in our own lives. And in Ephesians 1.7, Paul says we're guilty of trespasses. What's that mean? It's the idea that we've all stepped off the path we're supposed to be walking. Come on, be honest. You ever step off the path just a little bit? Some of you go running into the bushes, right? (laughs) God commands we live out perfection to match God's holy perfection. That's how narrow the path is. How are you doing staying on that one? We've all failed to do that, haven't we? I mean... What Romans 6.23 tells us, though, is that there's a wage you earn if you ever step off the path of perfection. If you are ever in any way less than perfect, we earn death. Death is the cost of sinning against God. And thus all of us deserve to die and eternally suffer the judgment of God because all of us have failed to live up to God's perfection. Make sure you understand this truth. You and I have sinned. There's no question about that. And our sin should rightly cost us our lives. And even my life is not enough to pay for the fact that I have gone against the perfection of God. I could not die and suffer eternally enough to pay the right penalty for offending God. Neither could you. We could never do enough good. We could never suffer enough punishment to make the full payment necessary to rescue ourselves from the price that we should have to pay. And the good news for Christians is this. God took action to make our payment to himself on our behalf. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth and he lived the perfect human life. And then Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And in that death after a perfect life, Jesus paid the price and fully satisfied the justice of the triune God. Jesus paid the debt for every sin that we ever have committed or will commit. And then Jesus rose from the grave and proved forever that he paid enough to rescue every person God will ever rescue. See, we've got a call to joy, Christians, because we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid a price You and I could never afford to pay to set us free from a punishment that we earn for our sin against God. Jesus is of infinite worth. Why is Jesus of of infinite worth? Because he's God in the flesh. At the cross, the infinitely worthy Son of God suffered death, 
a price he didn't have to pay, in order to pay the price for our infinite offense of offending, sinning against the infinitely holy God. And what do we get because of the redemption of Jesus? We get the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, forgiveness is a word that literally means to be let go. It comes from a Greek word that means to loose something. As in a person's chains being removed. A criminal's shackles or handcuffs being taken off and they're loosed, they're released. Something has hold of you. Something has a claim on you. And when you're forgiven, whatever had hold on you is released. God has the right, even his own self-imposed obligation, to properly punish us for sinning against him. That's justice. God is just. God will do justice. But when God forgives us, he frees us from the punishment that we deserve. He forgoes his right to crush us for what we've done. It's as if God covers over our sin or, or takes the sin off of us and just throws it away from us. I want you to hear some of the ways God's word describes forgiveness. Psalm 32 begins by saying, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Or Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Isaiah 118 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, that your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made, they shall be as white as snow, they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or Micah 7:19 says, He will again have compassion on us, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So many images are present in the Word of God to help us understand forgiveness. God covers our sin. God cleanses us from our sin. God atones for our sin. God lifts our sin off us and casts it, casts it as far away from you as you could ever imagine it being thrown. Now, tie redemption and forgiveness together and you have something beautiful. We're guilty and Jesus uses his perfect life and his sacrificial death to purchase you and me out of the damnation, out of the hell that we deserve. But God doesn't just pay our debt and purchase us out of judgment. God also forgives us in Jesus and treats us as if we were perfect like Jesus. That's how Christians are welcomed into heaven. And this is the combined action of the Holy Godhead. The Father sends the Son. The Father carries out a perfect justice in punishing Jesus for the sins of others. The Son is the one who is sacrificing himself in accord with the Father's will to purchase us and set us free as adopted children of God. The Spirit of God draws people to the Lord in faith and repentance and indwells the saved. And every bit of this is to the glory of God. 
God. God perfectly does justice and God totally forgives those who are saved. Do you see why I would suggest that the right response of a Christian is to praise God for redemption and forgiveness? This is magnificent. Christians, if you are not overwhelmed by the amazing nature of the forgiveness of God, of the ransom that was paid for your eternal soul by Jesus, of the wonderful truth of God, the work of God to rescue you, let your heart wonder at that today. Don't let this day end without you saying, praise you, God, for redemption and forgiveness. Don't let this get out of your mind. And if you don't yet know the forgiveness of God, I don't know that all of us do in this room. I don't know. But I urge you this. Come to Jesus and be forgiven. Right, Christians? Come to Jesus. See, the only people who are forgiven are those who turn away from ruling their own lives, turn away from sin, and come to Jesus to find mercy. So confess to God, I'm a sinner. Believe in Jesus that he died to pay for your sins and rose from the grave. Ask Jesus, please, Jesus, forgive me and take over my life. And then you can praise God for redemption and forgiveness too. Second point. Praise God for grace which is actually the title of the sermon too. Verse 7 through 8 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This sentence is beautiful. Paul is magnifying the wonderful truth of redemption and forgiveness. He again takes us right back to marveling at the grace of God because the redemption that we have received, the forgiveness that we're granted, it is according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Now the word grace, we use that word all the time, right? We sang it a couple times this morning. What does it mean? Grace means to be given something good you don't deserve. Grace means you are given a good thing you do not deserve. Now, mercy can be included in grace. Mercy is to not be punished for something you deserve to be punished for, to not receive a negative that you deserve. Mercy can be included in grace, but grace is bigger than mercy because grace is not merely God not punishing us for the wrong we do. Grace is the amazing fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Grace is not merely God saying, I'm not going to squash you. Grace is that God redeems us, forgives us, adopts us, sanctifies us, eternally blesses us, and much, 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 much more. So look at the words that Paul uses here to describe the grace of God. This is so cool. He says, grace is like great riches that the Lord lavishes upon us. It is a stunning God-sized gift given to sinners like you and me. So I want you to imagine that I told you that you are going to receive a gift from a man with fabulous wealth. How many of you would be in on that so far? Right? I want you to be thinking, when I'm talking here, I'm talking Warren Buffett-level wealth, Bill Gates-type wealth, Dennis Olson-type money. No, sorry, Dennis. 
I heard you laugh back there, so I figured you were with me. <laughs> Imagine somebody with fabulous wealth. Then the gift that you are given by that person is a $25 gift card to Applebee's. First of all, you should be grateful because that's $25 in food you didn't have before this gift was given, right? Okay. But that's a pretty small gift when considering the status of the giver, right? Yes, he's giving you something out of his wealth, but he's not giving you something in accord with his wealth. If a rich man were to give you a gift in accord with his riches, he would be giving to you something proportionate to what that man himself is worth. And that's the image that Paul is stirring up in our minds here. God has lavished the riches of his grace upon us in accord with the infinite worth and glory of God. So when we receive the blessing of salvation and eternal life from the Lord, we are receiving from the Lord a gift that is of infinite value. The price paid for your sins was a price of infinite worth. The blood of Jesus. Jesus rescuing you from hell, how much is that worth to you? That's infinite worth, folks. The adoption into the family of God, that's of infinite worth. The fact that God changes you more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ until in eternity, you will no longer sin or even want to sin. That is of infinite worth. Having a forever home in the presence of the Lord is of infinite worth. Being given a brand new resurrection body that will never wear out and never ache again. That's worth a lot. This is a gift of grace that God lavishes upon us in accordance with the riches of his greatness and his kindness. It is overwhelming, indescribable, unimaginable grace. And so again, two weeks in a row, I would urge you Christians, praise God for grace. Third point, praise God for wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 8 says, again, he lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight. And that little phrase right there, in all wisdom and insight, it's one of those pesky little phrases that it's hard to know exactly where it's supposed to go. For sure, it ties to verse 9. We're going to see that in a minute, right? God will make certain, thing known, certain things known to us in his wisdom and insight. And God has done the work of the gospel, lavishing us with grace, redeeming us, forgiving us in accord with his wisdom and insight. But some commentators would say, and I don't think they're totally wrong here because this is kind of a both and more than either or. It's also true that the graces God gives us, his gifts, his redemption, his mercy, all the things he gives us, they're gifts that he gives us. And they include that God grants us, if you are a believer, a level of wisdom and insight that you never had before. The Bible is clear that to fear the Lord, to care about the holiness of God, to desire to please God, that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And part of being saved is that you acknowledge a belief in the Lord, a genuine trust in the Lord, that you begin to follow the Lord in accord with the word of God. James tells us that we are supposed to be quick to ask God for wisdom, right? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. In Colossians and in Ephesians, both letters that Paul wrote about the same time, we can see that Paul prayed that God would bless the local church with wisdom. Colossians 1 verse 9 says, And so since the day we heard about you guys, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then in Ephesians, if you look down at verse 17 here, chapter 1 of Ephesians, you see him say again that Paul is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, wisdom is more than knowing facts. Wisdom is not just knowing some basic info. Wisdom is knowing how to function in the light of the truth of God. We need the wisdom of God if we're going to please God. We need God's wisdom to live as believers. And thanks be to God, friends, part of the gifts that God lavishes upon us is God-given wisdom. Once you're saved, you can live to the glory of God because God will gift you with the, with the wisdom to live to honor Him. That's a good thing, right? So thank God for wisdom. Fourth one, last one. You still with me, by the way? Good? All right, good. Praise God for His eternal plan. Praise God for His eternal plan. Now, just so you know, if I tell you all of the things that are to tell you about God's eternal plan, it would take me forever. So we won't do that here this morning. Praise God for His eternal plan. Look at this. Verses 9 to 10. In all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's the final reason to praise God for the gospel and grace that we'll get to this morning. Paul tells us that we are to rejoice that God has in God's wisdom, in God's insight, let us in on an important Mystery. Now, you might think to yourself, hearing that word mystery, this sounds like a lot of fun. Some of you have Scooby-Doo pictures in your head. How many of you love books about Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot? Yeah? A couple of you? How many of you are going, I have no idea who those people are? Shame on you, by the way. Do, 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 you like, do you like trying to catch all the clues and figure out who done it? Okay, do you assume the butler? Or like me, do you always assume it's the grieving widow until somebody tells you otherwise? And if something happens to me, I want you all to start by assuming that it's the grieving widow. <laughs> you may well be right. And she, wa- she may well uh, be uh, right, too. Um, <laughs> all right. Here in Ephesians, though, the mystery revealed to you and me, the mystery revealed to you and me, the revelation that is such a blessing, this is no crime to be solved. This is not a secret spiritual code that the enlightened can learn to elevate themselves spiritually in some sort of mystery religion. The mystery in Scripture, the concept of a mystery here, it's simple, 
but really important. A mystery in the Bible is a truth that is present, but which may not always be understood. A truth present, but maybe not fully revealed and fully understood just yet. So for example, think about what we know about Jesus in the Old Testament. God makes a lot of promises in the Old Testament about somebody who was coming, right? Born of woman, descended from Abraham, connected to David, and he's going to bless all nations. Sometimes in the truth about the coming rescuer, Messiah, he's going to come as a prophet. He's going to play the role of a priest. He's going to be a great king, right? But it's only in the New Testament. When you see Jesus, it's only there that you really get it. Oh, this is how Jesus does all of that. See, the way this is a sort of mystery is there are pieces of data, clues, if you will, about Jesus scattered all through the Old Testament, but they only truly come into clear focus when we see them in the light of the New Testament, the light which reveals the truth behind the mystery. And see, what we rejoice about, this is what Paul's saying is rejoice because God has now made known to us the mystery of his will. It's not hidden anymore. We're not Old Testament saints looking forward going, I wonder how God's going to do that and that. Now we see it's Jesus. See, God has had a plan since before he ever created the universe. And in the Old Testament, we can figure out some of the plan of God, but it takes the light of the gospel, it takes the revelation of the New Testament for you and me to really understand what God has been doing all throughout human history. We rejoice that God has made known to us his purpose. Stop for a second. I don't want you to be glad about something. Be glad God has a purpose. There are many people today who live in suicidal despair because they assume that everything that exists has no purpose and is meaningless. And those thoughts, they're terrible thoughts. They troubled Solomon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But then Solomon remembered that God is working everything out for a purpose and God will do all things rightly and God will do justice in the end and Solomon found hope. Your life has meaning because God is God. God is creator God made you in his image. And God has a purpose for you and everything he's ever made. So don't let yourself ever fall into despair in believing there's no purpose for your existence. Well, God set forth his ultimate plan in Jesus Christ. It would be God the Son who would carry out the work of redemption. And this is going to happen when, Paul says, it happened in the fullness of time. At just the right moment in the history of the universe, Jesus would come, die, and rise from the grave. At just the right moment, Jesus did the exact thing to pay the exact price to make the exact offering to rescue the exact people God has planned to save from all of eternity. And what's Jesus going to do in the fullness of time? 
Paul says this plan that has been made known, this mystery that has been revealed, is that Jesus Christ is going to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And that word for unite there, that's a word that means that He's going to bring things together, to, 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 to bring them together under a head, to bring them to their proper conclusion, to sum things up. The mystery here is that Jesus is bringing to its proper place every single thing that ever has been. Everything, when all is said and done, is going to end up exactly where God planned for it to be. Now, two parts of uniting all things. The fact that Jesus is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth tells us Jesus is going to set the universe right. Aren't you happy about that? See, there's, there's nothing in creation history that ever surprised God. You know that. But when Adam sinned, the universe was tainted. Creation is messed up and broken until God sets it right. Again, how many of you know today that creation is broken until God makes it right again? Again, this is a spot where I could ask Randy about his knees. He knows creation is broken right now. It's going to get better one day, but it's not today. But you guys have seen it too, storms, floods. Wild animal attacks, right? Romans 8, 19 to 23 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Don't you long for God to fix the universe? Have you ever stopped to think about what will not be in the new heavens and the new earth because they won't need to be there anymore? Hospitals? Police stations? Doctors? Lawyers? Cats? Am I, am I wrong? I may be wrong about that last one. They'll be lions. They're going to be much better. <laughs> Guys, the mystery revealed is that in the fullness of time, it is Jesus Christ who is going to set everything in creation that has gone wrong right. Lord of the Rings fans, when Sam Gamgee asks, is everything, what was it, everything evil going to come untrue? Right? All Things in heaven and on earth will be exactly as they're supposed to be in never-ending joy, never-ending happiness, never-ending adventure like Aslan in, in Chronicles of Narnia. Further up, further in, and see more than you ever thought you would see. The curse of sin will be removed, and as Jesus taught us to pray, God's kingdom will come and His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, real quick, I don't have time to do much of this, but there is another uniting that is fascinating. We're going to see more of it really in the remainder of this book. 
part of the glorious mystery that Jesus Christ reveals, the mystery that would have blown the minds of first century readers, is that the kingdom of God, the redemption, and the blessings of the gospel, every bit of it is building one family of God that includes Jewish and Gentile believers in the Lord. This would have stunned a first century reader. See, Faithful saints in the Old Testament, believers in Jesus in the New Testament, they are made into the one family of God. The common thread is not what your particular bloodline is or where you geographically came from. No, 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 no. Instead, the mystery, the amazing, I can't believe it, mystery is that the common thread of salvation from the beginning of history to the end of time is the singularly perfect work of Jesus Christ. God has an eternal plan. It involves Jesus. It was present in the Old Testament, beautifully revealed in the New Testament. God is bringing the entire universe to its proper conclusion in Jesus. Believers from national Israel and from all over the globe are going to be grafted together into the one family of God. And in the end, all things, heavenly things, earthly things, all things everywhere are going to be made right in Jesus. And that's why we praise God for his eternal plan. So, friends, there are a few reasons why we ought to be grateful to God for the gospel. We've been looking at eight verses in the Bible over the past two weeks. And I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Make it a goal of yours to know the truth of the work of Jesus. Make it your goal to know and love the gospel more. And praise God for redemption and forgiveness for grace lavished upon us, for spiritual wisdom, and for God's glorious, mysterious, eternal plan. Let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, we thank you because all that you are and all that you do is right your mysterious eternal plan is beyond all that we could ever imagine. Earlier we sang, come behold the wondrous mystery. And we do wonder at all that you've done. And we long for the day when you set all things right, when you make all things new. And then we say, God, we're sinners. We don't deserve that. We deserve your wrath, not for you to give us an eternal home. And then we see Jesus. And we just say, thank you, God. And we long to worship Jesus and obey Jesus and follow Jesus. Encourage us, convict us, and grow us. That's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.